in our first talk, we basically said that suffering is real. Uh, it's an inevitable part of life, and it's even an intended thing by God. It's part of what God intends for the Christian. He, he wants to show the world through us what it looks like to endure. It's one of the ways we reveal Jesus, our enduring faith in him when life doesn't make sense. But the fact of our suffering and our endurance is, isn't the whole story. That's not our whole testimony, is it? When trials come, there's a how to overcoming. How do we overcome them? No matter what the trial is, you can be sure that for the person who, who is experiencing the trial, it feels overwhelming to them. It's the thing that we can't get a hand on, the sin that clings so closely, perhaps, that we can't shake it, the, the feeling of burnout that we feel like is creating a hole in us, the relational discord that we can't reconcile. How do we overcome that which feels overwhelming? The text we're going to look at in Exodus chapter 1 helps us address that by teaching us that we overcome by trusting God to turn weakness into strength. And that's our main idea. You may want to write that down so you can think about it a bit later and talk to a friend about it. We overcome by trusting God to turn weakness into strength. Our outline for the time will be number one, an overwhelming adversary an overwhelming adversary, and then number two, an overcoming faith, an overcoming faith. And it's my prayer that our time together around God's Word will fortify us to overcome the adversaries that we have. So let's think first about an overwhelming adversary. I'm reading from Exodus chapter 1, the first few verses. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. All right, we'll stop there for a moment. Uh, you probably can't see this in your English text. If you're reading it from the ESV, you can't see this. But the, the Hebrew actually begins with the word and. And it, it tells us that Exodus is not really a new book. It, Genesis is the preface in many ways to Exodus. Uh, some of your translations may say now. Genesis... Uh, covered the creation and fall of mankind into sin and God's promise of redemption that would begin with Abraham and his descendants. Uh, by the end of Genesis, we have the children of Jacob, who's been renamed Israel, most emphatically not in the land that God had promised them. Instead, they're in Egypt. And we thought in our last talk about Joseph in prison. Uh, the rest of his story was all about how that evil that was done to him, God intended for good. He rises from the pit to become Pharaoh's right-hand man. He saves Egypt, as well as his own family, from starvation. And along the way, he enriches Pharaoh fabulously. So though they're immigrants in Egypt, they're given 
land to dwell in and favor and life is going good. You can see verse 7 there, it really stands out to emphasize that God is blessing the people like he promised. The people of Israel were fruitful, increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Have you ever been watching a movie and the, the, the opening scene of the movie is something idyllic and wonderful. You know, it's a family having a picnic in the park. And the dad says something like, isn't it so wonderful to be here together as a family? And as a movie watcher, you start to cringe because you're like, something terrible is about to happen. That's, that's a bit like this here. The author is setting up an incredible contrast. And that begins in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many, too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service, and mortar, and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. In China, there's a, an important concept called guanxi. Uh, guanxi is, it means relationship, that's how you translate it. It's kind of a commodity. Uh, so if you have guanxi, you can get stuff done, you can solve problems, but if you don't have guanxi, you're in trouble. So in Chinese we say, yo guanxi, mei guanxi, mei guanxi, yo guanxi. Don't worry if that doesn't mean anything to you, that's what it means. Uh, for them, the guanxi has disappeared, right? The horizontal favor is gone. What is left in the eyes of this new pharaoh is just politics and power. His words there in verses 9 and 10 encourage you to be following along in your copy of God's Word. They're designed to rouse the fear of the Egyptians by reframing the children of Israel as a threat. And this is an old playbook used against immigrants many times in history. They're too many and too mighty for us. They, they could join our enemies and fight against us and escape. And it's interesting right there, and on the one hand, he's playing on their fear. On the other, he's playing on their greed, right? I mean, why bring up their escape as undesirable unless you want to use them for personal gain? Verses 11 through 14, we see Pharaoh's plan works. He's able to reduce them to slavery. Notice the progression of words there in the text describing their plight. Taskmasters, afflict with heavy burdens oppressed ruthlessly, made them work as slaves, lives bitter with hard service. It's one kind of oppressive word after another. So we can see a great reversal going on here, can't we? From privilege to persecution. Now on one level, what's happening is not that strange. As I said, immigrants and minority ethnicities have often been treated that way. So in modern times, you could think about what happened uh, in Turkey with the Armenian genocide or, or the Germans and the Jewish people or the Afrikaners and the people of color in South Africa. I'm sure that you could tell me stories about that from this part of the world. But two things should stand out to us as the narrative moves forward. First, in verse 12, 
notice that God is not mentioned, but we're told that in spite of the persecution, they keep multiplying. And this is unexpected. Uh, the persecution should lead to impoverishment and a lowering birth rate, but the opposite is happening. So we ask why. That's the first thing we notice. Uh, the second, more theologically, we begin to groan along with the people of Israel. We put ourselves in their shoes and, and we ponder how unexpected this all seems, similar to Joseph in many ways, that he didn't do anything wrong, per se, to be suffering this way, just following God and their life just went in the toilet. We can picture someone asking, well, what good is it to be God's people if this is where it gets us? Perhaps for the more mature, they're asking, just how do I walk with God through this suffering? But we need to get to the bottom before we look up, so let's finish the chapter, picking it up in verse 15. And the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dwelt, dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So Pharaoh here, he, he moves from slavery to infanticide. Uh, his oppression is not having the intended effect. Uh, he's getting his cities built, but his greed does not cover his growing fear. They continue to multiply, so he moves to this other plan. Now, uh, with the size of the Hebrew nation, I think we should assume that Shifra and Puah are more like the head of the midwives. I, I don't know if they could have covered all the births themselves. But his command to them is shocking in its barbarity, but it carries behind it the power of the throne, right? So, and the threat of death to them if they disobey. But we're told because they feared God, they disobeyed, and the narrative carries us quickly to their summons to appear before Pharaoh. Now, I wonder what you make of their explanation of a speedy delivery. I, I'm, I'm tempted to take a vote. Uh, this is a text that always divides people. Um, there are those who, who, who are clear in their minds, okay, they're just lying, okay, they're just totally making this up. Uh, others interpret this in saying, okay, no, God is actually giving supernaturally fast deliveries. That's also possible. I don't know which it is. Um, what is clear is that their actions are motivated by their fear of God. They want to do the right thing. Um, I don't know. Just to tell you my own personal view, I think they're being at least... Uh, somewhat deceptive. So I can think of times when I was in China and I was asked a question related to my missionary work and I gave an answer that's not technically a lie, but which led the person in the wrong direction and I knew it was going to do that. I'm okay with that. Later on, you can talk to me about situational ethics if you want to, but that's just where I am on that. But, but notice that the last verse of this chapter, the nightmare is not over for the Israelites. 
The chapter ends in verse 22 with the coup de grace. Uh, having failed twice, Pharaoh now commands all the people. Can you see that there? Then Pharaoh commanded all his people. He takes it to, to everyone, commanding them to throw any male babies into the Nile River. I mean, this must be one of the darkest chapters in the Bible. How evil do you have to be to kill infants? And yet, certainly, it's worth stopping and thinking about our own modern society that kills many babies in the womb. The picture painted in this first chapter is the people of Israel seemingly up against an overwhelming adversary. Can you see that? Their fortunes have been reversed. Life has changed from good to bad, from a dream situation in Goshen to a nightmare. And the forces arrayed against them are overwhelming. Now, before we meditate on the response of Shifra and Pua and some of the others in chapter 2, uh, let's apply this first truth to our lives, the reality of an overwhelming adversary. I think this is something that we too easily forget, which we do to our peril. Genesis 3 describes everything that's going to happen going forward in the Bible as, a, as enmity, as a battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. So between Satan and all those who knowingly or unknowingly are following him and the seed of the woman, those who believe and follow God. That enmity is a warfare that, that marks everything that happens in the Bible, the entire storyline till the defeat of Satan and the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21. So whether we are conscious of a Pharaoh figure trying to do us harm or not, the evil one and his minions are against us. We could add in the world system that is opposed to God, and is therefore opposed to Christians. We can even move from external foes to internal foes and see that our fallen sinful nature fights against us too. So when we forget that that is the reality in which we live, that we have adversaries, they are overwhelming. We are at war. If we forget that, what we end up doing is turning church into a therapy session. This is a place to come get a shot of spiritual caffeine. We turn theology into self-help. We'd like some tips, maybe some best practices to make our lives a little bit better. But this is not the picture of Christianity in the Bible describes the enemy, our enemy, as a, as a lion prowling around looking for someone to devour. The Apostle Paul describes our need to be in constant battle with the spiritual forces of darkness by clothing ourselves in the armor of God. So let me ask you that first question. Do you live with an awareness of the warfare that is going on all around you? Even when we are conscious of the warfare, we often feel weary, confused, struggling. Our adversaries truly feel overwhelming. I like the way Alec Mateer sums up this first chapter of Exodus. We are still the 12-tribe community scattered in the world, subject to the world's pressures, enduring the world's hardships, suffering the world's sorrows. We'd like an answer to our question, why? But God does not come down to explain himself experiences without explanations. That's what the first chapter of Exodus is all about. Our only comfort is that God comes to us in the day of darkness 
and lovingly reassures us that it's all right, it's all planned, and it will all be well. But for that, we should consider our second point, an overcoming faith. Let's pick up chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it, placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child. Behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. All right, let's take stock of this text and then get some lessons from it. Uh, in the midst of the horror of ethnic cleansing or genocide or whatever you want to call it, we're told here about a marriage, the conception of a child, and the birth of a son. And we see the mom's actions upon seeing the child. Of course she decides to exercise civil disobedience and hide the child. Uh, in the New Testament, we actually get two different texts that comment on this action. So in Hebrews 11:23, it says that the parents together hid the child for three months by faith. So they were trusting God as they did it. And there's a because. Because they saw the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, I've thought long and hard. That's a difficult verse for me because there, there are no parents that look at their newborn child and go, eh, not so beautiful. I mean, maybe they should. I mean, maybe you're going to say you're the exception. I mean, even most children, when they come out, they're not beautiful. Okay, I have six children. Um, but but what, what parent doesn't, I mean, it, it makes it seem like they were like, oh, they were undecided. They saw the child, and they're like, ah, let's keep him. No, I don't think that's how it went. In Stephen's speech in Acts 7, he says that when Moses was born, he was beautiful in God's sight. So in some sense, I think I take that to mean he was marked out for special blessing. God had a special purpose for him. I, I think we can easily imagine Moses' parents in some degree of anxiety. They, they know the edict. Um, and they're afraid as the due date approaches. But when they lay their eyes on their son... That the natural love of a parent combined with this God-given faith fuels the actions that follow. So they hide him for as long as they can, and they say, come what may. Now, remember, Pharaoh has mobilized all of Egypt to find and kill the Hebrew babies by throwing him in the Nile. So, so the parents can't hide him forever. It's interesting that Moses' mother decides on a path that does cast Moses into the Nile, it's, I don't know what you think about that. It, it technically is what he said to do. 
Uh, but it, it's in a way that shows her trust in God over against the Egyptians' God of the Nile. And, and notice that her trust doesn't mean that she doesn't take practical steps. So she constructs this, this basket. Yeah, the, the word for basket here, it's, it's actually the word ark. It's so fascinating. It's only used here and in Noah's ark. So in this, this is the means of salvation for Moses. She constructs it, she puts the basket in the reeds, maybe where it might be kept close to shore, apparently where women come down to do their washing. And she places Miriam, Moses' sister, to watch and wait. So all of that sets up this wonderful scene. Miriam watching as Pharaoh's daughter comes down, sees the basket, finds the baby. We, we notice that the crying that could have been the, the death of Moses but it led to him being found out by someone else, is actually what knits him to Pharaoh's daughter's heart. She takes pity on him. I think we see here that she's not hardened like her dad. And notice the swift courage of Miriam to come and audaciously propose she find a nurse. So, so we end this scene. It's so moving. Moses' mom, holding her beloved child, the Redeemer of Israel, adopted into the family and the palace of the one who set out to destroy him. That's incredible. Now, pulling back to look at the whole of, of chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 10, uh, we, we're presented with this powerful contrast, aren't we? On the one side, we have Pharaoh. He obviously represents an unbeliever in the one true and living God. He, he's the overwhelming adversary of the story. He's the one animated by the seed of the serpent to oppose God's people. And we could say that his worldview is a familiar one, uh, the secular worldview of so many around us. For Pharaoh, everything is practical. Everything is about power, about control, his position, his influence, his wealth and resources are to be used for himself. And he uses them with brutal efficiency. Interestingly, though, we should note that with all that power, he's still driven by fear, isn't he? He's afraid of the Israelites. But on the other side, what do we have? Well, we have the Israelites, but in terms of the characters that are brought out in this story, who, who, who are the people who stand in Pharaoh's way? It's a group of women. It's five women. Shifra, Pua, Moses' mom, Miriam, and most ironic of all, his own daughter. So what do we take from this story? I mean, if we live in this dangerous place where overwhelming enemies like the world, the flesh, and the devil attack us, what do we do? And how do we live differently than those who use power and position and strength to try to control their lives and the lives of others? There are three lessons I want to take away about the kind of faith that turns weakness into strength. So number one, let the fear of God keep you from evil. Number one, let the fear of God keep you from evil. Twice we're told that the midwives feared God. Chapter 1, verse 17, verse 21. That's why, even at great risk to themselves, they didn't give in to evil. 
In older lingo, we used to speak about a person by saying they're, they're a God-fearing man or a God-fearing woman. What we mean is that a person who, who is God-fearing lives with a sense that God is watching them and their awe of who he is motivates a desire to obey him. They, they know he's the judge. And it's not just in a fear of punishment sort of way. A God-fearing man or woman wants to please God, not offend God. And the older I get, the, the more I think that this right here will determine so much of the outcome of your life and mine. Because we're talking about obedience to the unenforceable. What brings about obedience in things that cannot be enforced? What happens when you find yourself in a financial gray area at work? When the lines between what is ethical and unethical become gray? What happens when your boss pursues a clearly unethical line and you're being asked to go along with it? Do you view honesty as more important than your career? What would a God-fearing man do? What would a God-fearing woman do? How about difficulty in marriage? You want to get married, but a non-Christian is the only one who pursues you. You get married, but you start feeling emotionally distant from your spouse. I mean, sexuality and romantic connection is the drug of our age. We're surrounded by a society that tells you to be true to your feelings. When I, when I flew here on AirAsia, we landed. As soon as we landed, they started playing like disco music. I have no idea why they did that. Like we, we hadn't even gotten up yet. And it was like, it, it was a totally crass. I mean, if, if, my, if my kids were there, I would have cringed. It, it was some song about hooking up. It was terrible. But that, that's the drug of our age. That's what people worship. What's going to keep us from giving in to our feelings? A Christian will mark themselves out as God-fearing by not considering things that are wrong. So number one, your weakness gets turned to strength when the fear of God sways you from evil. Number two, let trust in God move you towards obedience. Let trust in God move you towards obedience. This is the positive side. This is what we said animates Moses' mom and dad, according to Hebrews 11, the text leaves us with a whole bunch of unanswered questions. I mean, what did they think was going to happen to the basket? What exactly was the plan here? And what did they know anyway about the future of the child? We don't know that. But we see them moving forward trusting God, both in the hiding of the child and then coming up with this plan filled with thoughtfulness, this well-constructed basket, this strategic placement, the lookout prepared with a plan of what to say. But, but mostly, it's just filled with trust in God. When I studied this with my, my teens, my four teenagers, um, we talked about the faith of Miriam. That's what stood out to them, <laughs> is the sister Miriam who's got to go up to Pharaoh's daughter and, and propose this audacious plan. Friends, faith is not ultimately passive. It does involve waiting and often a quiet trust in God. But just as often, it requires us to do something. 
to step forward in faith and obedience. Believing God will honor what you plan to do. There are things that God is calling you to do right now. I know that because you're here. And you come, I trust, week by week to sit under the preaching of God's Word. I, I, one of the best pieces of advice I can give you about how to listen to sermons is to be an active listener. It doesn't do you any good just to take in information and then walk out and think about other things. Every time you listen to a sermon, you should be asking God, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to apply? A lot of times application is just changing the way you think and what you believe. That's valid application. But, but when the preacher is saying, hey, you should go out later this afternoon and read through this text, go do that. When the, when the preacher says, hey, you should think about somebody this week who you could try to share this with in the office, go do that. We're meant to put our faith into action. Listening takes work as well as preaching. So what is the application of the text to what you want to believe, how, you, how are you to live, what you need to do? Uh, these sorts of things require you to move forward by faith, not knowing the result, but knowing that obedience requires action. Maybe you realize that you need to start serving others in some way in the church. Maybe it is that you need to reach out to others in evangelism. Maybe it's that you need to take the responsibility to start a time of family worship. I've been talking about family worship with the fathers in our church uh, for, well, several churches now. I've been talking to each of them about it. Many of the dads sit there and they smile and they nod and they never do it. So if, if you're a dad out there, start pulling out your Bible at dinner time and read it to your family and then pray for them. Just do that. Just read it and then pray for them. You will be amazed at what God will do in your family. Start meeting up with a younger believer for discipleship. Maybe it's that you need to take a step to instill discipline in your life to pray and to read the Word in the morning. So weakness turns into strength, first, as fear of God keeps us from evil, and second, as trust in God moves us into action. There's a third thing. Let the glory of God, number three, let the glory of God draw you into worship. This one is the most important. Let the glory of God draw you into worship. One of the reasons that I love this portion of Scripture about the life of Moses is that he wrote it, and, and I just, I picture him smiling as, as he writes that last section, because it is just, you couldn't, you couldn't make this stuff up. I mean, it, it's just amazing. He knew it was his story. Some combination of interviewing the people involved and his own personal experience gives us the book of Exodus. And what he writes here is really a meditation on the meticulous providence of God. That's what it is. You and I are left to meditate on how amazing it is that God would take the weak things of the world and use them to shame the strong. We're left thinking about how these five women overcame, not by strength, but by faith. And I have to do a little aside here because I have three daughters, and so I've spent much of the last, uh, well, at least 
15 years watching Disney movies with them. Um, and so one of the things that we do together is we track the progression of uh, feminism in Disney movies, okay? Um, now, I, I have to say there is something really interesting of flipping the old story on its head, which is, you know, the old story is that a princess is rescued by knight in shining, shining armor on a white horse or something like this. Caroline always gives me a hard time because I, I mix them all together, but that's the basic old Disney story, right? And at some point we got tired of that, so, so we get Frozen, you know, and, and the, the guy in Frozen is just kind of a doofus, you know, but you still kind of think that he's going to save the day, but then it's not, it's the sister. And I, I, I like Frozen a lot, so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not criticizing. But after Frozen, things got really bad, you know, got Moana. The story of Moana is basically she's got to help out the totally dorky guy and her parents who are also idiots, you know, so she just has to trust herself. I shouldn't go off on this. It, it, will, it will lead us in the wrong direction. Uh, but then, and I do this with Caroline, then we talk about Marvel movies. They're even worse because Marvel can't imagine a female heroine doing anything else than like punching her way through 20 guys. It's like, I, we're kind of tired of this thing. But, but I do think it's instructive because our, our, our world has no vision of true femininity, right? And, and, and I, I think as we talk about showing Jesus to the world, so just talking to the sisters here, one of the most powerful ways you can speak about the truth of the gospel is, is showing what true femininity is like. Femininity that trusts God and doesn't have to control and punch your way through problems figuratively, whatever, whatever that means. I mean, that is just an incredible witness that is open to you. And I, and I say, look at these five women, because they win the day. But they, they, they win by trusting God, and their weakness is turned to strength. I mean, they're really heroic. God honors them because they honor him. As 1 John says, that this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Back to our lesson, God's meticulous providence has the deliverer of Israel not just rescued, but adopted and raised in Pharaoh's own household. Israel would have laughed and rejoiced and worshipped at the reading of this story because of God's sovereign care for them. So do you trust in the meticulous sovereignty of God? I'm not saying that that's easy. Because as we talked about in our first talk, oftentimes we don't have the answers. We, we, we can't connect all the dots of what is happening to us and, and how it brings glory to God, how it will result in our good in the end. But friend, can you see how our, our witness to a watching world is made all the more powerful because we can't answer those questions? I mean, I'm conscious of this in, in raising my children. Um, they're uh, professing believers, uh, all of them, as best as I can tell, but I, I think that's fairly normal. I don't actually know which of them are regenerate and which are not, but I know that they're watching their mom and dad, especially 
when things go wrong. Because it's not that hard to be a Christian when everything is going well for you. But when we called our kids into the room and told them that dad had cancer, you you watch them perk up and say, "Well, well, why did God let that happen? And that's a difficult question to answer in that moment, right? Dad, why can't we go back to China? When they bring those questions, it's essential that we can testify, look, I don't know the answers, but I know God is good. I think that reveals Jesus just as well to our neighbors, our family members that don't know Jesus, our coworkers. It's especially in the enduring of suffering and how we overcome by turning weakness into strength. Other people don't know an all-sovereign and all-loving God. There's no hope in their suffering, and there is no trust as they face their enemies. So when we do, our lives speak loudly. Uh, When I was in uh, chemotherapy, uh, there's a, a really dark place. I call it a dark place. It's, it's not that it wasn't well lit. Uh, it's called the Infusion Center. It's where the chemotherapy patients go to uh, do this crazy thing of having poison uh, dripped into our bloodstream uh, just enough so it doesn't kill us, but it kills the cancer. That, that's the idea. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a U-shaped uh, thing. Um, of rooms around a central kind of nurse's station that I was in. Um, and th- there's, there's some kind of incredible bonding that happens with all of the patients there because all of us know what's at stake. A- and all of us are going through this really surreal experience where, okay, for the next seven hours, I'm going to drip poison into my body. And you, you can walk around with your, um, your uh, what's that, IV stand and you can just kind of meet and greet the neighbors in the infusion set. It's, it's, a, it's a really weird deal. Uh, but I have to tell you that um, in some ways, I've never felt more alive than when I'm talking to a group of people that all know that we are dead men walking. The, the, the truth that should be truth for every single one of us at all times, that life is fragile, we don't know how long we've got, and ultimately it's just a matter of you and your creator. That was poignantly real for every one of us in that infusion center. I remember one of the nurses that was talking to me, I was trying to talk to her about the gospel. Uh, she was encouraging me to put up a picture of my family in the window because she said, uh, every patient's got to know what they're doing this for. And, and I said to her, Look, my family's not enough. They're not enough because I have no idea how this will turn out. We're going to hope for the best, but I need something and you need something that goes way beyond just our family. Uh, that, that blew her mind. But brothers and sisters, that's what we have when we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we have the ultimate example of how God brought about victory through weakness. I mean, th- that's what the cross is all about. I mean, when we go back and remember that in the fullness of time, God saw the slavery and suffering of his people, just, just like in Exodus 1, he saw their slavery and suffering, and he sent his son 
as a baby. And that baby had a maniacal, tyrannical ruler try to kill him, just like in this story. And, and the family seems up against impossible odds. And yet God, in his meticulous providence, preserved that baby so he could grow up and not, not deliver us from physical slavery and death, but from our ultimate slavery and death. That's what the Lord Jesus came and did. His weakness was turned to strength, and at the cross, victory is ours through faith. I know in these first two talks, I mean, you're like, Mark, boy, these are two tough passages to begin with. I think it's essential that we start here, because if, if we're going to talk about testifying to the world about our faith, we need to make sure that we're honest about who we are and what we're up against and where our only hope is. Brothers and sisters, it's in Jesus Christ. As he showed us on the cross, God delights to turn weakness into strength. So let the fear of God keep you from evil. Let trust in God move you towards obedience. And let the glory of God lead you into worship. Let's pray. Father, again, we delight to think about your goodness to your people. You've been ever faithful to your promises. Would you increase our faith and would you allow us to live it out in lives of trust and obedience. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we enter into a time of response to God's word, actually, you can remain seated. And for the first few moments, um, in light of what was preached from God's word, I want us to reflect and think through that question that Pastor Mark posed in, in, in passing, but I think it's so important for us uh, to understand and take time to consider what is God speaking to you about, and therefore, what is God wanting you to do? Uh, I'll, I'll leave it a little bit open, um, uh, purposely for yeah, for a moment. I, I will I will guide us uh, in a moment after that, but just for the initial moments, just to ask yourself, with the word in front of you, you see God's amazing work of redemption and salvation in the things that the world sees as weak, in how Pharaoh tried to gain his way, whether that's in his fear, whether that's in his thirst for hunger, for power, whatever it is, is all for himself. And you see just this beautiful story of God's redemption using five women who with the fear of God were kept from evil. They trusted in God, not knowing what was to come, but in obedience, 
And in that way, Pharaoh's plan completely foiled, completely turned over as the very one he wanted to kill and murder this this inf helpless infant was adopted into his own family. Yeah, no, no, no one can make up stories like this. It's just the amazing work of redemption and salvation in the life, in the coming, in the life, the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So with God's word open, just take a moment. What is God speaking to you about in his word? What does God want you to do?